Do you find it helpful to have that passage uh, open in front of you back in uh, John 19? Now, Mother's Day is a great opportunity to say thank you to the unsung heroes uh, of our society, uh, namely mums. I think they are often the unsung heroes uh, in our uh, culture, aren't they? Mums have been crucial, really, to the the foundation of the world, to uh, the foundation uh, of our society. And uh, it's said, isn't it, that behind every great man there's a great woman. Well, I think that's normally his mum. I think that's uh, normally how it works. I think that's the truth for great women as well. Uh, They have great mothers uh, behind them. Down through church history, mothers have actually been massively influential. One of the greatest theologians of all time, uh, Augustine, uh, was prayed for every day by his mother uh, that he would become a Christian. He eventually became a Christian only in his 30s. She prayed for 30 years that he would become a Christian. And he went on to be one of the most influential theologians and influential Christians of all time. Susanna Wesley is known as the mother of Methodism for the way that she influenced her sons, John and Charles Wesley. Mothers are amazing. And this morning we're going to see how Jesus treated his own amazing mother, We're going to look at John's uh, Gospel. Uh, That's what we've been doing this Easter. Now, Mary's actually only mentioned twice in John's Gospel. Some people are quite surprised by that. She's not really a a central character in the Gospels. But she's here in our passage this morning. But the central character, as we're going to see as we go through the passage, is the Lord Jesus. John is here trying to show us things about Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to see that Jesus is his father's sacrificial son. We're going to see that he's his people's suffering king. And then finally we're going to see that he's his mother's selfless son. So we're going to start off uh, looking at verses 17 and 18. That uh, Jesus is his father's sacrificial son. Let me read them to you again. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the school, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And uh, with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Here really we pick up the story where we left it uh, last week. Jesus has been sentenced by Pilate to crucifixion, even though Pilate believes that Jesus is an innocent man. Jesus now carries his own cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull. There's no contradiction here when we read that Simon of Cyrene carried his cross. Jesus did some of the way, but no doubt after such a terrible beating, uh, as we saw last week, uh, he couldn't carry such a heavy beam uh, all the way to the cross. The cruelty of making someone carry their own cross, their own method of execution, was part of the humiliation of what was going on. He would be stripped naked, and the charge would be written on a notice on the cross as he walked through to warn others of committing the same offence. But here as he carries this block of wood on his back to his own execution. Many have seen the parallel here between Jesus and Isaac. Uh, you remember Isaac in the Old Testament? God told Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. I put there uh, Genesis 22.2 on the back of your notice sheet. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall tell you. Not only do we see the link of Jesus being God's only son, his beloved son, 
uh, as God pronounces that at Jesus' baptism at the beginning. Uh, But also Mount Moriah, where he's told to go to sacrifice his sons, is actually the hills. The mountains of Moriah were the hills that Jerusalem was built on. So 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. That's where this is all happening. It's happening where Abraham was to offer Isaac. So Isaac was offered in this very same place. And Isaac too had to carry the wood laying on his back. Genesis 22, 6 to 8. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went together and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, here I, here I am, sorry, here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went off together. By drawing these parallels with Isaac, uh, John and, and God, the author of the Bible, wants us to think through a bit more about what's going on. It's inviting you to draw parallels between Jesus and Isaac. A father sacrificing his son. A willing and uh, faithful son bowing to his father's will. But whereas Isaac was spared, Jesus was not. Jesus is the sacrifice Abraham didn't have to make, if you like. He's the lamb that was promised as a substitute. He was the ram caught in the thicket. Abraham did not have to sacrifice his son Isaac, but God did sacrifice his son, Jesus. And it's a reminder of what God was giving up. I mean, as I read these things now, as I think about uh, now I have children myself, I can't help but read the story of Isaac and Abraham with a tear in my eye. Could I give up my sons if God asked me? But God did give up his son, his only son. And our sonship and and parenthood is only a pale reflection of that love that God the Father has for God the Son. United in eternity with the closest bonds of intimacy. Bonds that are shattered for those hours that he was on the cross. Not splitting the Trinity, but the Son who had to this point only known his Father's immeasurable pleasure now experiences the full force of his father's anger and wrath, suffering until he dies. So the Isaac imagery reminds us that this is a sacrifice taking place by a father of his beloved son, his only son. Jesus is his father's sacrificial son. But he's also his people's suffering king. This is shown to us in two different ways in our passage. The first one is in verses 19 to 22. I'll read them to us again. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So just as Pilate spoke more than he knew in the last passage, so he writes more than he knows here. Pilate insists on having king of the Jews written as Jesus' charge. 
The chief priests asked for it to be changed. Just, just say that he said he was the king of the Jews. But Pilate, as we know, liked to annoy people. That seemed to be his favourite pastime. So he puts his foot down. No, I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to uh, do what you want me to do. Now this could be read either way, couldn't it? Pilate could be insisting on Jesus' innocence to the last. You know, I, I've put this here. I'm saying that he was innocent. Or it could be a bit more sinister. It could be Pilate trying to insist, well, I'm crucifying the king of the Jews. In other words, I'm bigger than your king. Remember your place. Because actually I am crucifying your king. Either way, it remains clear to all. The charge that is actually being made against Jesus is that he is king of the Jews. And in that sense, he's guilty as charged, isn't he? That is actually who he is. Jesus again and again is shown to be killed for who he really is. It's not a case of mistaken identity. They knew exactly who he was claiming to be. But they did not believe him. More than that, they did not want him. They rejected him again and again. He had made their life harder, hadn't he? Think of what Jesus did in his ministry, challenging the leader's sinful hypocrisy, just as much as he charged uh, challenge their sinful occupiers, challenging their cushy agreement with the Romans, and risking political suicide by uh, seeming to challenge uh, what they were doing. See, often when people reject Jesus, it's not so much unbelief, but undesire. They don't want Jesus to be king, rather than that they don't believe that he actually is king. The chief priest knew that if Jesus' claim was true, then their life couldn't continue as it had done before. But rather than have life with Jesus as their king, actually they decide to get rid of him. So Pilate here reminds us that whatever claims and counterclaims, here actually lies their king. Here hangs their king on the cross. He really is the king. But the second way that John shows us as Jesus as this suffering king is by the fulfilment of prophecy. Have a look at verses 23 uh, to the beginning of 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds sounds like a bit of a surreal thing to describe in the middle of such an important event. You know, it seems quite detailed into exactly what's happening with these soldiers as they split up the clothes. This was a common practice, what they were doing. uh, That the soldiers who crucified people, that executed people, were allowed to take what they had on them. Uh, so they decide to split up the clothes, but his undershirt, the bit that he would wear under the rest of his uh, clothes, was just in one piece. So they decide to draw straws for it or something uh, to that effect. And it's actually recorded in all four Gospels. And in each of them, it's presented as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now, the quote that we actually have there is from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by King David. And it speaks of his immense suffering, being king, and yet we read of him being beaten and rejected. 
all the way through the psalm, it reminds us that David suffered. Well, here John takes that psalm and applies it to Jesus. Now, either John and the other gospel writers are taking great liberties with the text, because it's about King David, that's who's writing it, Uh, it's got a historical context, or in some ways they really do see this being about Jesus. Again and again in the Gospels, Jesus is called the son of David, isn't he? The priests know what that means. So in John seven forty two, it says, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They knew that the Christ, uh, that the king, was to be the son of David, a new David, of David's line, born where King David was born. If Jesus was this Christ, the king, then they knew that he was the son of David. And Jesus is that king, isn't he? The Christ, the new David, come to rescue his people. And the Jews of Jesus' day understood that the Christ would be this new David. But they thought of David as the one who would sort of reign in glory. They thought of glorious David, you know, sitting on his throne, ruling over uh, this vast land. So they saw the Christ as this one who would reign in glory like David did. One who would come and kick out the Romans and reign over a glorious empire. So if this is what they were thinking, well it was very clear to the priests in a way that Jesus was not this Christ that they wanted, that they expected. But what they totally missed was that David himself was a suffering king. That David actually had been rejected by his people, that he was persecuted by his people. It's not just this psalm, all the way through the psalms, David complains of being beaten and mocked and scorned and rejected. David faced his fair share of humiliation, didn't he? And if the Christ was to be the new greater David, wouldn't it follow that he would suffer too? But the Jews had totally missed this. Jesus was a king. The new David. But he was a suffering king. And this prophecy shows us, reminds us, this was always going to be the the case. Jesus was suffering on behalf of his own people. But finally, Jesus wasn't just a king. This glorious king, this suffering king. He was also Mary's son. We see here, alas, that Jesus was his mother's selfless son. Let me read to you 24, end of 24 to 27. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Here we have this group of women at the cross. All the Gospels agree that there was a group of female followers of Jesus present at his crucifixion. Some give us names, specifically, and some give us relations, so like here, Mary's sister. Uh, Elsewhere, that's probably the same as Salome. You can sort of put them together to work out who is who. But when nearly all the men abandoned him, actually here the women stood by, even as Jesus uh, died on the cross. And here we discover that one of those women who was there was Mary, Jesus' mother. And this is partly why I wanted to focus on this passage on Mother's Day, uh, as we see Jesus' care 
of his mother, even in the hardest moments of his life. Now, I've spent a lot of time this week deliberating exactly why Jesus did this. It seems a little bit strange that Jesus would hand over his mother to John. I mean, it seems a really loving act, if you think about it. But Jesus, we read elsewhere in John's Gospel, did have other brothers. So John 2.12, after this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. So... If he was Mary's only child, that might sort of make sense. But actually, we read that he had other brothers. But John does also tell us that at this point, his brothers don't believe. So John 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. So it seems as though what Jesus is doing here is his mother waits for him at the cross as he's dying. Rather than hand him over, hand her over, sorry, to his unbelieving brothers, he entrusts her to the care of John one of his own disciples. Why John? Well, it's possible that John was Mary's nephew when you start to put all those women uh, at the cross together, though it depends exactly how you you harmonise it. But he's he's also the only one of the twelve that, according to tradition, was not martyred. Certainly, as we read the book of Revelation, he's there right at the very end, if you like. He, He carries on living a lot longer than the other disciples. Just speculating, but is it possible that Jesus gave her to John because he knew actually that he would be able to care for her right until the end of her life? Whereas the other apostles, if he'd given Mary to any of the other ones, actually she'd be faced with the death of another son. Whereas actually John would uh, live on. According to tradition, they both moved to Ephesus uh, and, and lived out the rest of their days there. Even Jesus' brothers who became believers were martyred we read. Was this a kindness to Mary, providing for her right until the very end of her life? Well, it could be. We don't know for definite. But it would certainly fit with what we read elsewhere in the Bible. In 1 Timothy, which again is on the back of your notice sheets, believers are told, but if anyone does not provide for his his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It could be that what we see here on the cross is Jesus practicing what he preaches in the words of scripture, caring for his mother. So what are the implications for us? I think there are two big implications for us this morning. The first is following Jesus' pattern. Following Jesus' pattern. Here as we look at Jesus' die, as we look at Jesus' death, we see a pattern for life. Jesus was a suffering Christ. And it follows that actually those who follow the suffering Christ will suffer. Jesus elsewhere doesn't, tells us, doesn't he, to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. If we're Christians here this morning, we're to walk the path that he walked. Laying down our rights for our own life to follow him. Laying down our lives for each other. Being so other person centred, even when things are hard. So often we find when things start getting tough, when suffering comes, we become a bit like spoons. Do you know what I mean by that? So spoons, they sort of, they, they bend in on themselves, don't they, depending on which way you, you've got your spoon. Or like there's, there's big uh, sun catches uh, in, in the deserts they have that sort of collect the rays of the sun by uh, being, is it concave or convex? I always get this from where I think concave. And the, the light sort of points in. 
When we suffer, it can be so tempting to sort of turn in on ourselves. Sort of just cut the world outside out. But actually, that can be very dangerous, like those things in the desert. If actually the heat doesn't get uh, out somewhere, they can destroy themselves. What we need to do when we're suffering is it's so tempting to turn in on ourselves. But actually, we need to be fountains pouring ourselves out for others. Now, our rate of flow might go down at those times when it's hard. But that's still what we should be aiming to be. A channel of blessing to others, just as Jesus is here on the cross. This is also a pattern for parents. Jesus' example shows us how we're to look after our mums. If Jesus could think about his mum on the cross, then can't we think about our parents in the day-to-day? Now that'll look different at different stages in life. And I know that so many in our church have been brilliant model examples of caring for elderly parents. And I know that many still labour on with the care uh, of elderly parents. Well, be encouraged. As you do that, you're following in the Lord's footsteps, in the footsteps of the Master. Be encouraged. God is pleased with such an act of care. God wants us to care for our families. At younger ages, it might look different. We're called to honour our father and mother, aren't we? Are we in regular contact with our parents? Uh, Do we genuinely listen to their advice, even if we might not choose to follow it in the end? The fact is that we don't treat our parents as we should, do we? None of us have treated them as we should. But Jesus, doesn't this do this to be our pattern? He did this actually because we fail at these things. As we look at Jesus dying on the cross, more is happening than him just setting an example for us. Actually, we're to see Jesus the person here dying on the cross. John is presenting Jesus to us in all his perfections. He wants us to see who Christ is and what he's doing. He wants us to see him as the willing son like Isaac. He wants us to see him as that great Davidic king dying for his people. He wants us to see him caring for his mother even in his darkest hour. And this is there for us to help to help us adore Jesus. Not just to follow his example, if you like. It's actually there for us to look at this and go, isn't Jesus amazing? As we see Jesus willingly sacrifice himself for us. As we see him endure through mockery and scorn. As we see him hanging on the cross and yet continuing to care for others. In fact, his very hanging there on the cross is for others, isn't it? His death was not a tragic loss of life. His death was a rescue mission. There are countless stories, aren't there, through history of mothers who gave their life to rescue their children. Well, Jesus here gives his life to rescue his children, his people. He wasn't dying in vain. He was dying in victory. He was dying to take the rap for his people. He was dying to take the punishment for their sin. He willingly laid down his life so that his own people could enjoy eternal life. Isn't this the king that you'd want? Isn't this the friend that you'd want? Well, the amazing truth of the gospel is that although we haven't treated Jesus even as we should, though we haven't wanted him to be our king over us, though we've wanted to live life without him, Jesus still offers himself as our friend and king, as our rescuer, so that we can have that rescue from sin and its judgment. 
So we can have Jesus as our saviour, friend and king. And if we have him as our saviour, friend and king here this morning, then gaze again at his amazing perfections. That God would be so gracious to give us such an amazing saviour. Who didn't even give in when he faced the agony of the cross. Who never compromised his character in the face of mockery, division, derision and suffering. Who was so other person centred that even on the cross he thought of others. What a saviour who forgives our sin. What a king will reign with him. What a friend our debt to pay. What a son for Mary on Mother's Day. What a saviour. Well, let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that as he died on the cross, he was dying for others. Thank you that he died as our great king, dying for his people. And Father, we pray that if we haven't put our trust in him already, Father, that we would trust in him, our great and glorious king, our wonderful friend, our saviour. And Father, if we have, Father, help us to remember all the wonders of his character. Help us to be amazed anew that you would sacrifice him for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing our last song, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. And it finishes with that refrain all the way through, Hallelujah, what a Saviour.